Someone stated that the, uh, the eye is the major organ for receptivity in today's world. It's quite an insightful thought. And if you think about it, it's, uh, it's really quite true. Because nothing really happens today without pictures. If you think of a company, they will have a logo. They will work very hard on that corporate image of uniforms and how their staff look and even go to great expense to have swanky-looking buildings, uh, not just a brass plate, but the whole building that looks and presents that right image. It's all about the eye. If you talk to young people who are conditioned by this age, they will uh, very often know or believe that uh, it's all about how you look. How you look is important. And if you look beautiful, if you look handsome, if you dress in the right way, then that will be the way you get on in life. It's all about the eye. Even our phones, our mobile phones, we have them. They, uh, they may uh, help us to communicate, but there's, they do more than that nowadays. They take photos. They send photos. They can even, you can have a video conference uh, talking with us so they can see you as well as hear you. And it's all about the eye. Even a newspaper, a book, it's about the images that put on the front page the cover of the book will sell it far more than if it's just words. Even a CD, which is all about listening, must have the right image on the front. You see, it's all about the eye. This is the world in which we live. And as we come through to look at Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 8, we're working our way through Mark. We're halfway through. Uh, it's part of this series called Postcards from Palestine because Mark gives us these snapshots, these images from the life of Jesus to tell us all that we need to know about this man. And we have reached halfway through our series. And we're going to continue on through to the end, taking us up to Easter. And you may remember when we were working through all the books of the Bible that uh, we, we realized that in modern writing, very often the important part of our modern book is the, the, the introduction you have to grab a reader, get their attention, and then you have to have a good ending. And it's all about the ending and the beginning of a book nowadays. But in uh, Bible times, in these cultures, uh, the heart of the message was always in the heart of the writing. So at the center was what the writer really wanted to say, and we find ourselves at the center of Mark's Gospel. And therefore we will find, if we look carefully, the main point of Mark's Gospel. We find it in Mark chapter 8, and we find that in this chapter, it's the eye, it's seeing, that is crucial. This is the whole point of this chapter, of those that see and those that don't. And we'll look, work through that. Mark is, is communicating this crucial uh, message to us, the reader, to us, the hearer, of what he is trying to say. It's the centre of the book. He wants us to see Jesus for who he is. See the real Jesus, communicated through the sharp stories, pictures, images, and right at the center of his book, this is what it's about. And there's that hope as we look today that we will see uh, Jesus coming into vision more and more clearly. The first 
part of the chapter. It's a very long chapter. We'll have to whiz through it, but I just want to do so. And we see that uh, it's firstly about the feeding. The opening of the chapter, Jesus feeds 4,000. Just two chapters early, in chapter 6, we see that Jesus fed 5,000 people plus. We have two stories, very similar, and it's almost as if it's a reiteration, a retelling, so we really get the point. And yet there is a difference between these two. At least one difference, one that is important to Mark, I believe. In chapter 6, the feeding of 5,000, we see when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jump forward to chapters and it says, Jesus said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Do you notice the difference? In the first account, Jesus, we learn, has compassion. In the second account, he says it out loud. He enunciates, he verbalizes, I have compassion. We are to get that Jesus is a compassionate saviour. He wants us to understand. He wants his disciples to understand that. And maybe he engineers this second occasion and he speaks it out so they can really understand who he is. That he starts to come into vision. And so we probably know the story. He feeds the 4,000 miraculously with uh, a few loaves and some fish. And then he sends the crowds away. And his disciples hop in a boat with Jesus and go to a new area. And you might suddenly realize, you know, that was a really good choice of Jesus to choose fishermen as his disciples. It was like choosing a taxi driver in London because they can whiz all over the place, get around quickly in the area uh, because they know it and they have that ability to travel. In choosing some fishermen, Jesus chose people who could get him around to where he wanted to go. And he goes around. We see Mark telling that story as almost Jesus flitting around, moving from place to place, not stopping to receive the applause, but sowing the seeds as he flits around. But they land uh, on this new location, Dalmanutha, and the Pharisees come to Jesus asking for a sign, and he refuses to give it. Had they been there, feeding 4,000 people with a few loaves and some fish would have been sign enough. That was the sign for those who wanted to see. But they are asking to see something that will persuade them. Show us a miracle, they say. They want to see a sign uh, for this, this uh, from heaven. They hadn't seen because they were blinded in our prayers. David referred to that passage where the, there are those who have been blinded by God. Jesus is interested in those who are blind and want to see, but there are those who've been blinded by God who will not see, and we may not understand Uh, the whys and wherefores of that but there are those who almost in their attitude have chosen themselves to be blind to the truth so we have these Pharisees wanting to see a sign but Jesus says I'm not going to give you a sign I'm not going to give a sign to this generation just because they ask for one I tell you the truth no sign will be given to it and when he says this generation 
clearly there were others in that generation who would see the sign, who would see him for who he is. So maybe Jesus is talking about this generation, these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders who will not see. Their eyes have been blinded, their hearts have been hardened. So for them, he says, no sign. You won't see a sign just because you ask for it. So there's that feeding incident and then there's a learning incident because they jump in the boat after talking with those Pharisees and double back to the other side and Jesus says to the, uh, uh, to the disciples as they're in the boat, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now these disciples were great for getting Jesus around. They were not so attentive when it came to being followers of Jesus and understanding what he was going on about. It is, even for us as we look at it, it looks a bit of an obscure um, statement. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. While they probably hunkered down into a huddle, furrowed their brows, they thought, well, we've got one loaf of bread. Uh, What does Jesus mean when he says this? And eventually they concluded that Jesus was saying, you haven't got enough bread. You haven't got enough. That's what they thought he was saying. But we have the hindsight of uh, the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of commentaries to explain and help us reach the right conclusion. The yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. What was Jesus talking about? Well, you remember that Herod at one point called Jesus and said, I want you to do some miraculous sign for me to see. And Jesus not only didn't do them, he remained silent. He would not talk to Herod. He would not perform like a monkey or a conjurer for this so-called king, just as he wouldn't perform for the Pharisees. And so this helps link the two, the Pharisees and Herod together. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, those who want to see a show, those who want to see a sign just for the razzmatazz, just for the effect, just for the spectacle and the mag- magic. That was not Jesus' bag. That's not why he did miracles. He did miracles because he wanted the lost to be found, the broken to be healed, the, those who were not saved to be saved. The Pharisees and Herod, they just wanted to be wowed. But Jesus didn't go in for these things. So that was the warning to them. They, they were tr- str- struggling to understand it and not understanding what he was meaning. And at this point, Jesus says, with perhaps exasperation in his, his tone, you st- but do you still not see or understand? Do you still not see or understand? Again, that emphasis on seeing. He wants them to see. Mark wants us to pick up on that word, see. Perhaps he was hoping, Jesus was hoping for more from the disciples, but he wasn't getting it, so he tries to highlight it for them. How many baskets, he asks, how many baskets were left over when I fed 5,000? 12, they said. And how many baskets were left over when I fed 4,000? Seven, they said. The commentator Hattardo believes that for Mark, as many other biblical writers, there's a symbolic Uh, importance to these numbers, uh, a symbolic uh, attachment, and and we need to look at these. Twelve baskets, uh, twelve disciples. 
amongst Jesus. There were five loaves, there were 5,000 people. There were seven loaves, there were seven leftover baskets, and seven is the number of perfection. We sadly have lost some of the understanding of, of what the numbers mean. It's a culturally bound thing that we don't fully understand, we only have to guess at. But if nothing else, there is the sense here that Jesus supplies. When he was given five loaves, he could feed 5,000 with more to spare. When he was given seven loaves and some fish to feed 4,000, he could come up with the goods and more. That is, I think, something of what Jesus wants the disciples to see and what Mark wants us to see. God provides abundantly. Jesus is more than you need. For whatever it is in life you have, whatever it is, the joys or the sorrows, you have Jesus. And that's more than you'll ever need. But he says, do you still not see or understand? He's trying to help them see it. And he still has more work to do to convince them to open their eyes to see what is happening and who he is. So perhaps their view of Jesus is still coming into vision. And then on in the chapter, chapter 8, we see that there's a healing. And Jesus moves on to Bethesda and Jesus healed a blind man. Again, Mark is surely marshalling the stories to make a point about the growing understanding of the disciples. And Jesus is acting in a way to highlight what he wants to say. We see that people brought a man to Jesus and Jesus made mud with dust and saliva and rubbed it on the man's eyes. And at first chance he said, what can you see? And the man said, I can see trees walking around. It wasn't clear vision. It was better than he had, but not truly clear. And Jesus again laid hands on the man and suddenly he could see everything. So this man goes from not seeing to seeing partially, to seeing fully and clearly. And like the feeding stories, there are two feeding stories. There also uh, is a counterpart to this story. Similarity in events and language uh, and the fact that it was a healing. It comes in chapter 7, verse 31 to 37. In both stories, it was people who brought a man to Jesus. The person did not come of their own volition. They were brought. In both stories, uh, these people wanted Jesus to touch the person. And in both stories, Jesus healed with the involvement of saliva. Quite interesting that there's that parallel. But again, it's important. And Mark is drawing that out for us. Add to these uh, stories that they're unique to Mark. They don't appear in the other Gospels. They are unique insights that Mark brings to us. And we get the idea again that Mark is trying to draw us attention to these things. But in the healing of the blind man and the healing of the deaf man, there, are, there is an important difference. Because in a second, it isn't a straight healing. It's a two-part process. And Jesus, who usually healed immediately with a word a touch, or, or on this occasion, uh, getting involved and getting dirty. I'm just going to move this down. Um, immediately there's, there's something different, and that this is a partial two-part healing. 
And again, we, we get that impression, I think it's unmistakable, that there's that growing sense of seeing. For the disciples, they are slowly coming to see who Jesus is. And yes, a person can see Jesus vaguely in a fluffy outline. Yes, he's different, but can't make out the detail. But persevere, press on, want to know who this Jesus is, and you will come to see him fully. And this, I think, is the crucial heart of Mark's Gospel. So when Jesus says to his disciples, do you still not see or understand? He's saying that to us even today. To the modern reader who's looking at this account, given to us by Mark, do you still not see or understand who I am, why I came, what it is I'm about? And it may not be exasperation that Jesus speaks this line with, but compassion. Checking we have understood who, uh, who he is and we've seen that. Checking our vision to see if it's cloudy or clear. Checking whether we still have more of that journey to go on and that we understand there is more of that journey to go on. The blind man saw what he thought were trees walking around and Jesus continued to be gracious to him. And then we see his eyes were open, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Again, bang, that comes back to us. Do you see uh, everything clearly? Are you one who was once was blind, but now I see? Do you see everything clearly when it comes to Jesus? I know that I see Jesus but I would not claim to see him as fully as I ought uh, and fully as I might one day see him. I know that I don't know him as fully as he fully knows me. I believe there's yet more light to break forth from his word, as it says in that old song. But what about you? How well do you see Jesus? How well do you know him? Do you keep on looking or do you think, well... I know enough. I've got, you know, so far and there's no further I need to go. Surely we should go on and on and on, wanting to know more about Jesus, wanting to understand him and love him more and more. But after this two-part healing, Jesus says an interesting thing, an important detail of this story. Jesus says to the blind man in verse 26, Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Hold on to that detail for just a minute. So the disciples have seen Jesus do miracles such as feeding large crowds, but they've not seen clearly who he is. For him, he's still coming into vision. So he pushes the point as they push on with their journey. And as they travel, Jesus starts this conversation. Who do people say that I am? Who do, who do they name me as? Who do they think I really am? And there's a range of answers. And then Jesus pushes home the point still further. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter said, you are the Christ. That was a breakthrough for Peter and the disciples. They'd reached a point where they'd finally sort of let the penny drop they could see him for who he was 
uh, and they had reached a stage on that journey. But immediately, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that. An intriguing thing yet again. You would have thought he would have said, right, go and shout that from the rooftops. Go and tell everyone you know, I am the Christ. But he doesn't. He says, keep it quiet. But again, hold on to that detail. So they know who Jesus is, and he continues in his teaching. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. We get the, the, the understanding that Jesus wasn't taken by surprise when he's now to a cross. He didn't walk into the Garden of Gethsemane thinking, this is going to be a nice prayer time. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to be beaten and flogged and crucified to the point of death. And he knew he would die. And he knew who would be responsible, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. But he knew he would rise again. And yet he did all this willingly, knowingly. This is the unfailing love that we celebrate, that Jesus went into these things eyes open. But even as he says this, Peter doesn't like the idea. He objected. He took Jesus to one side. No, no, no. You mustn't allow this to happen. And we all know Jesus' response. Get behind me, Satan. We can understand Peter's reluctance to hear Jesus speak like that. Surely we would wouldn't want Jesus to suffer if we were in that band of disciples. We wouldn't want to hear him talk of, of suffering and dying. And when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, I don't believe he's speaking to Peter as such. He's speaking to the enemy th who is working through Jesus. Otherwise, you know, you would think Peter would be chucked out the disciples. You've blown it. You've really got it wrong. Get out. Never come back. But Jesus doesn't do that. He allows us to make the most crushing of mistakes and really make an idiot of ourselves and let him down, but he still keeps us on board. Get behind me, Satan. Sometimes there are times when he will speak into our life and speak to the sin in our life rather than rejecting and condemning us. And so Peter is, again, helped to see that no, you can't bypass the suffering, you can't bypass the death and resurrection. And we get from Jesus a fuller explanation, not only about his suffering, but the suffering of others. Because he's, we read, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to lose their life... Uh, save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will and the gospel will save it again those words for the gospel are unique to Mark there is a, a, a way to follow a way to follow Jesus and a way to live out the gospel and that comes through suffering and Mark is starting to draw in some of these threads that we've been holding on to there we start to see Jesus coming into vision. Remember the blind man who saw, not all at once, but in stages. That's true for all who will follow Jesus. There will be that growing awareness of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. 
not necessarily a two-stage conversion, but a gradual journey. And we're on that journey as long as we choose to remain saved. Remember how the blind man was not allowed to go back to, his, to the village. Jesus said, don't go back to the village. What I think we are to pick up from that is that he was, Jesus was sending this man out into the world. To say, no, it's not a life of comfort, not a life of sitting on the settee watching telly. It's to get out into the world. To go with this testimony of, who, uh, of what Jesus has done for you. That is what we can all take out. We don't need to be an expert there. We just need to say what Jesus has done for us. And then remember how Peter is told not to tell that Jesus is the Christ to anyone else. That wasn't an all-time ban. That was a then-for-now ban. Peter was not to say Jesus is the Christ without saying he would suffer and die and have to suffer and die and rise again. And that anyone who would follow would also have to suffer and die to themselves, take up their cross and follow him. You see, we can be so keen to get out the gospel and say, believe in Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the uh, you know, saviour of the world. Without adding that crucial bit that to follow him will entail suffering. If you snap off that part of the gospel, you lose all the sense of it. Jesus is the Christ, the saviour of the world, but those who will follow him will go through suffering. Maybe that's why people can come to faith and then so quickly fall away because they were never warned, told the whole gospel that it would involve suffering. Maybe it's why some people seem to lose their faith when difficulty comes because they say, well, where is Jesus? They weren't warned that to follow Jesus would be and entail a life of suffering. It's the whole gospel that we need to take and the whole gospel that we need to live for. Living for Jesus and for the gospel. Being prepared to die and suffer because that is the whole story. And I think that's what Mark wants us to see. That's what the disciples needed to see. That this was the gospel that was not, you know, a a life of, of happiness forevermore. And a life where, you know, nothing will ever go wrong if you put your trust in Jesus. But at the heart of the gospel is that way of suffering. That Jesus first trod. That we, if we choose to follow, are merely treading in his footsteps suffering not nearly as much as he did but suffering nonetheless going through hardship not nearly as much as he did but going through hardship nonetheless these are the things that Mark and Jesus want us to understand this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and so we perhaps need to put that question to ourselves do you still not see or understand If you're grumbling about the the difficulties you're going through, you haven't fully seen. If you're going uh, to others and, and moaning about all the things going on in your life, then you've not seen and understood. There are things that we must go through that have a purpose. Just as Jesus went through things that had a purpose, 
and we just need our eyes opened Lord open our eyes that we can see you for who you are see how you suffered and that if we choose to follow we too will suffer do you still not see or understand Jesus we may not see and understand as fully as we ought but Lord help us to see even as you see us in Jesus name Amen